The debate on gender and sexuality isn't the only issue of concern uh, with the Imago Dei, the image of God and man in today's world, but it is certainly the most omnipresent. There isn't a day that goes by where we are not impacted by this debate in some way, be it a news story that comes our way or a personal encounter with someone who is struggling with their gender or their sexual identity or a call to join the fight to normalize gender fluidity or to fight its acceptance as normative. We simply cannot get away from this debate. Ten years ago, I told our student ministry leaders at the time that I believed the biggest threat to the authority of God's Word in the lives of our student would be the acceptance of unbiblical views of sexual identity and expression. And those students are now in their mid to late 20s. And I think if you surveyed students from that era, you would be shocked at how many of them have rejected the Bible's teachings on this subject. In fact, uh, several years ago, I preached at Midwestern Seminary in chapel, and I said at that time, none of us as pastors wanted to survey what our congregation under the age of 40 thought and believed about sexuality. But before we lament this generation's compromise, those of us who have a little less tread on the tire might need to look in the mirror. The parents and grandparents of those students that I've just talked about long ago rejected the authority of God's Word and embraced unbiblical views of sexual identity and expression, not, of course, in normalizing same-sex and transgender sexual identities, but in the shoulder shrug that those generations gave to non-marital sex. The data is clear and irrefutable and has remained remarkably unchanged since the 50s, which means that what I'm about to say applies to people in their 80s in this room. The vast majority of men and women have had sex before marriage. The details of the compromise are different, but the compromise is the same. All generations, children, parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents have rejected the authority of God's Word to speak to this incredibly vital part of our lives. And the justification for doing so undermines the image of God in us. Four generations now, boomers, uh, Gen Xers, millennials, and Gen Z, have accepted as law that sexual desire experienced and fulfilled as we deem fit is essential to what it means to be human. Previous generations may have sought fulfillment before marriage or in multiple partners of the opposite sex, and the current generation may seek fulfillment in a kaleidoscope of sexual expression, but all generations are defining their basic humanity by their sexual appetites and not as image bearers. Now, last week we learned that the image of God in us is really not confined to one aspect of us, but is really all of the things that feed what it means to be human. And so to learn about the impact of the Imago Dei, the image of God in our lives, we need to look to Jesus, 
who is called in Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God. And that's what we will do with each subject that we cover in this series. In each message, we will ask ourselves what Jesus taught, which is the same way as asking what is true, because Jesus is God. Then we'll ask what Jesus did in his life on earth in light of what is true, and then we'll see what he commanded us to do. That's the rhythm from now on in this message. What did Jesus teach? What did Jesus do? What did Jesus command? And so, what did Jesus teach on the subject of gender and sexuality? Well, to find out, uh, we're going to look at a passage where he taught on marriage, which should highlight how issues of gender and sexuality actually live in the same space as issues regarding marriage and singleness, which we'll discuss next week. So we'll deal more with the background of what I'm about to read next week, but we're in a passage in Matthew 19 where Jesus was asked to weigh in on a theological debate concerning divorce, and in response, he says this in Matthew 19.4, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, we're going to stop right there because that's the part of what Jesus said in response to the question he received on divorce that impacts our subject today. And probably stopping right there is causing more than a few of you to say that's it. That's all he said on gender and sexuality. That's not much. Well, to Jesus' followers in this room, I would simply ask how many times does Jesus have to say something before it becomes true to you? But to skeptics in this room, including Jesus followers who are skeptical about our church's teaching, which will become clear on gender and sexuality, let me say that it may indeed be all that Jesus said in his earthly life on that subject, but what he said wasn't isolated. It was actually fed by the Old Testament, which was his Bible and which was the only Bible that the New Testament church had. Now, now the teaching on gender and sexuality actually shows up in a lot of places in the Old Testament, but Jesus here is obviously alluding to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So let's look to the screens and see what it says there. We reviewed it last week. Let's just see it again. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And then Jesus' quote, male and female, he created them. Now, if you were here last week, I shared that the primary meaning of what we have just read is that the image of God was given to all mankind, men and women, boys and girls, are all equal in their humanity. But I also said last week that there was more to it than just that, and here it is. We're being told in Genesis 1 that part of what it means to be human is to have biological sex. In other words, God did not only give humanity equally to men and women and boys and girls 
To be men and women and boys and girls is part of what it means to be human. Now, that's not all that it means to be human because biological sex obviously isn't only limited to humanity, but it is part of what it means to be human. And because this is the creation account, what we are being told here is that God assigned biological sex to humans. He made Adam to be a man. He made Eve to be a woman. But, believe it or not, the debate in our world isn't about the existence of biological sex. Even the most secular of scientists and philosophers accept the reality of biological sex. The debate is whether gender, our perceived maleness and femaleness, our metaphysical selves, if you will, can be separated from our biological sex. In other words, can my body and my gender be different? That is the debate. And secular society says, yes, they can absolutely be separated. And more than that, having separated them, secularists assign greater value to the metaphysical self. In other words, we are being told that what we feel overruns our biology. I had a friend who is transgender explain their transgender identity to me as a self-perception. They had been able to separate their biology from how they felt. And thus, in the secular mind, gender and biology can be totally disconnected from one another. So we must ask, does Genesis give us any indication that gender and biological sex are inseparable? Let's explore that. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are two different presentations of God's creative activity. Genesis 1 is broad and poetic and written with a focus on who. Who created the heavens and the earth? Genesis 2, on the other hand, is specific and narrative, focusing on how. How God created the humanity that would bear His image. And in Genesis 2, God allows Adam to see a world that is teeming with biologically sexed creatures in order to come to the conclusion that he has no counterpart. At that point in time, humanity was only male. That's the reason things were so messy. I'm kidding. And so God says this in Genesis 2, 18, on your screens. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, here's what I hope that you'll see. With the assigning of biological sex in the creation of woman came an identity corresponding to that biological sex. A biologically sexed woman was created whose identity was unique to that biological sex, is that of a helper or partner to the man. And together in their different roles, they were to work to be fruitful and multiply, but more than that, to exercise dominion over creation. Neither could do this alone. 
They needed from the other what they lacked in themselves. So we see in Genesis 2 that God created both biological sex and also gender roles and identity corresponding to that biological sex. In Genesis then, biological sex and gender are viewed as one and the same. But again, what did Jesus teach? And thus, what is true? Back to Matthew 19.4. The language of the New Testament has complexities and subtleties that are all but impossible to bring into our language many times, and Matthew 19.4 is an example. Without boring you with a grammar lesson from a dead language, the language of the New Testament had a specific way of stating something as settled fact that goes beyond our language's use of the past tense. The language of the New Testament had a way of saying, this is just true. This just is. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is teaching that gender is inseparable from biological sex in highlighting the quote from Genesis 2. In saying, he who created them in the beginning made them male and female, he is double underlining the truth of Genesis 2, that gender is inseparable from biological sex. And if you accept that Jesus is God, as all of Orthodox Christianity does, then Jesus is not merely offering an opinion. He is saying that this is true. And if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then you simply aren't permitted to ignore his truth. In fact, to reject Jesus' teaching that gender is inseparable from biological sex is to reject his authority to speak to one of the fundamental aspects of human identity, which then begs the question as to what real authority Jesus actually has in your life if he's not allowed to speak to really what is the most basic aspect of it. This is why this whole debate is so eternally significant. It is not just a Christian obsession with sex. Now, if all that I have presented to you of Jesus' saying and underlining is actually true, then the next question should be, why is there so much gender and sexual confusion in the world? And it's because of something else that Jesus taught, and thus because of something else that is true. Jesus taught that we are broken sexually. And he did this by way of simple acknowledgement of the condition of the human heart. In Matthew 15, 19, just a few chapters earlier, Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples as a follow-up to an encounter that he had been having with some adversarial Pharisees earlier in that chapter. And there he says this, Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Jesus here is talking about how the human heart is broken by pointing out some of the representative ways that sin will manifest itself in our lives. And two of the ways that he lists are sexual in nature. One is very specific, adultery. But the second way is broad. 
sexual immorality, pronounced porneia in Jesus' language in Matthew 15. Jesus is saying that one of the ways in which human beings are broken is that they are broken sexually. So the reason there is so much gender and sexual confusion is because we are sinners and it will work itself out in that way. Thus, how we feel and what we want sexually can actually undercut our true humanity. Jesus is saying that there are ways in which our efforts to feel human sexual fulfillment actually keep us from truly being human. And so the debate on sexuality, the societal sea in which we are swimming in 2023, is actually an undermining of the image of God that is disguised as a plea to our sense of compassion. We're being told that only a mean-spirited bigot would want to keep someone from experiencing love as they feel compelled to experience it. I promise you, that's what our college students and our high school students and really what adults in the workplace are being taught today, that we're mean-spirited bigots to keep someone from experiencing love as they feel compelled to experience. And Christians have to know when you get that kind of accusation against you how to respond to the challenge, which we can do. If we continue to look to Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the true example of what it means to be created in God's image, and therefore the true example of what it means to be human, we look to Him and we ask, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do when encountering a person struggling with their gender identity or sexuality? Now, admittedly, we have no record of Jesus encountering a person struggling with their sexual identity or their gender identity, which may lead some to conclude, well, this wasn't a big issue in Christ's day. But that would be wrong. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul addresses issues impacting the church at Corinth directly related to gender expression. Without going into a whole other sermon, and therefore you not getting home until after halftime, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, is correcting those coming to the faith in Jesus out of the prostitution of the temple of Apollo. As temple prostitutes in Corinth, they would present themselves as feminine or masculine depending on the sexual desire of the one who was coming to worship at the temple. And after coming to Christ, they continued to portray themselves in these gender-fluid ways in the church at Corinth. That's what Paul is correcting in 1 Corinthians 11, and the reason for the largely misunderstood and horribly misapplied discussion in that chapter about long hair for women and short hair for men. So it's not that gender fluidity wasn't an issue in Christ's day. It's just that we have no record of him addressing it directly. But issues of gender and sexuality are just specific symptoms of the sexual brokenness that touches us all. And so by looking for what Jesus did in response to sexual immorality generally, we can find a pattern for dealing with gender and sexual confusion that we might encounter in the lives of people that we know and love. And with this as our goal, 
The minds of our teaching team went to what will be a very familiar passage of Scripture to many, if not most of us. If you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 8. It's where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. Find verse 2 and follow along as I read. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This, they said, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. I submit to you that if we hold this event up to the light of the Holy Spirit, the inescapable conclusion as to what Jesus did in direct response to the sexually broken people that he met we will find the answer to dealing with those who are struggling with gender and sexuality that we know and love. And here's what he did. It's unmistakable. Jesus treated the sexually broken as image bearers. He afforded them the dignity and the respect that they deserved as bearers of the Imago Dei as human beings. Let's see what there is to see here. This woman was brought to Jesus as an issue. The issue was theological. Does Jesus uphold the law of Moses, which would have permitted a person caught in adultery to be stoned? But more than theological, the issue was ideological. Who would Jesus side with in the conservative and liberal divide framing Jewish life at the time? For the men who brought the woman to Jesus, she was merely a rhetorical end something to be used in order to accomplish a larger cultural point, which was their main concern. But for Jesus, for Jesus, she was created in the image of God. She was a human person. And so for all of the conjecture surrounding what he might have written in the dirt, and by the way, my money is on where is the man, by so doing, he directed attention away from her. And his words to her when it was just the two of them confirm that he didn't see her as a debate to be won, but as a person to redeem. So the first thing that we can learn 
from Jesus as his followers is that we must recover our own humanity in his image by seeing with Jesus' eyes the person. We can't let the politics of the gender debate cloud our understanding that the gender and sexually confused in our midst are not things. They are not pawns in a political debate. Jesus also shows us here how to see the sexual sin of others in light of our own. If you'll remember last week, we saw that while the image of God was corrupted by sin, it remained intact as Adam, created in the image of God, passed that image on to his son, who passed it on to his son, and on and on and on. The image is our humanity, and we've all corrupted it because of our sin. It's so easy to compare our sins to others, and by lessening our own corruption, we are free to withhold compassion from other people and to judge them. That's what these men were doing. As Jesus followers, though, being remade into his image, into who we were intended to be, we can't view others as less than us because we find their sin less palatable than our own. Jesus saw this woman as a bearer of the image of God and for what she could be, sexually broken though she was. So he showed her mercy. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we need to learn. But in closing, let us think about what Jesus commanded. And by staying with this encounter, we see this unmistakably. Jesus called the sexually broken to repentance. In the secular debate on this subject, we are told that we lessen the humanity of a person struggling with sexual sin by failing to show them mercy, which is code for just accept them completely, no strings attached. And I hope that you've seen in Jesus' encounter with a woman caught in adultery that Jesus actually models for us what true mercy is and can be. He shows us that when we treat people caught up in sexual sin as subhuman, we trample on their humanity even as they misunderstand their humanity. But listen closely. We also lessen the humanity of people by failing to call them to repentance. Jesus did all that we just said. He treated this woman as a human person. He saw this woman caught in sin for what she could be. He held up a mirror to those who self-righteously thought of themselves as better He showed her mercy, and then when they were alone, he called her to repent. Go, and from now on, sin no more. When we pit justice against mercy, we treat people with less dignity than they deserve as image bearers. But when we pit mercy against justice, we keep people from finding their true selves. Because the key to recovering our humanity is not to continue in sexual sin or any sin. The key to recovering our humanity is to repent of our sexual sin or any sin and find wholeness in relationship with Jesus Christ. He shows us what it truly means to live and be human. So, to those in our midst today, struggling with their gender identity and sexuality, and we would be foolish to think that there are none. This 
is the make or break moment. Everything in our society tells those of you who are struggling with this that what I'm saying of Jesus makes our church an anti-LGBTQ church and is a message of hate. I don't deny that that is how many would view our message today. But I hope you hear my heart. I sincerely believe that Jesus teaches that living in a gender identity that is separated from your biological sin is, or biological sex is a sin, and that any sexual activity outside of the bounds prescribed by the Bible in a heterosexual marriage is sin. And so, I call those unrepentant in their sexual brokenness among us today to repentance in Jesus Christ. Not to judge you or to limit you as a human being. I do so because Jesus himself did so. And because your only hope for recovering the sense of self and fulfillment that you are searching for is to find it in him. Does this mean that you'll never be tempted in these ways again? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. I know I followed Jesus for over 45 years, and I'm very creative with the temptations that I face after all that time. But I will tell you, for 45 years, I've learned time and time again that the lure of sin pales in comparison to the satisfaction that I find in Jesus Christ. And we'll get into this more next week, but the fear of being alone that so many of those who struggle with their gender and sexuality feel has been provided for in Jesus through community with the body of Christ to the church. That loneliness that you fear is meant to be alleviated by the church to which many, considering repentance, might say, uh, I don't think you know the church. Those church folks are never going to accept me. And so then let me say this to the body of Christ. It should give us pause when we see the same kinds of outcasts and sinners that flocked to Jesus running from us as fast as they can. We can tell ourselves that it's just because we're holding the line and we're calling on sinners to repent, but Jesus called sinners to repent as well. And they still flocked to him to sit at his feet. I submit that they think of the church as a place of hate because they know there are many here who truly despise them. So we have a choice. This is a make-or-break moment for us. We can treat people struggling with gender and sexuality as things, as pawns of the woke mob, as enemies, or we can see them as persons who in Jesus can be more than they are, and we can love them, calling them to the same wholeness in Jesus that we have found as we do. And in so doing, show the world Jesus and also Show them what it truly means to be human. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.